In 2020, the global workforce lost an equivalent of 255 million full-time jobs, an estimated 3.7 trillion in wages, and 4.4% of global GDP. On this week's Radio Davos, jobs, livelihoods, and the future of work. In just the last year alone, in, for example, India, there are 32 million less people in the middle class. Overall, you're seeing a massive rise in inequality, poverty, a loss of jobs, a disruption in the workplace. On the 1st and 2nd of June 2020, the World Economic Forum hosts the Jobs Reset Summit to find ways of getting people back to work and into the jobs of the future. Labour markets of tomorrow will not be driven by these traditional white or blue-collar work, but they talk about these new-collar jobs. So forget white and blue-collar jobs, many of the new-collar careers will be pink and green. Pink positions, the so-called care economy, right? Nurses, carers, teachers, and then the green jobs, including solar engineers, wind technicians, and battery experts. On Radio Davos, we look at the world's biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, and with a look ahead to the Jobs Reset Summit, this is Radio Davos. Work from home facilitator, algorithm bias auditor, cyber calamity forecaster, are these the jobs of the future? In the second half of this episode, we'll be looking at those and other jobs that have been suggested will be how many of us will be earning a living in the not-too-distant future. We're talking about jobs ahead of the Jobs Reset Summit, which the World Economic Forum is hosting on the 1st and 2nd of June, at a crucial moment as many parts of the world are still struggling with the pandemic and everywhere people are wondering what their world will look like once COVID is behind us. To help me look at the future of work, I was joined by Francine Lacqua, editor-at-large at Bloomberg Television, I started by asking Francine what her job entails. I ask a lot of questions to a lot of people. I'm an editor at large, but really is trying to get to the bottom of all the trends in the economy and business and finance and try and figure out, you know, what we'll be living like and what will be the main factors to lack out for in the next two, three, four, five, ten years. And a big part of that, of course, is the future of jobs, which this summit is talking about. I mean, how do you see the whole kind of jobs market, the job situation at the moment? Well, um, Robin, I would probably look at it through the lens of the economy. So if you look at the economy globally, so it's increasing after a pretty, pretty tough year, but it's probably failing too many people. And there's a lot of research saying that, you know, educated or middle class, you can call it the elite is pulling farther ahead, but then millions of people are actually being left behind. They're struggling, deeply concerned about the future. COVID really exacerbated this divide. And this is probably the one thing that we can say for certain, people that can work from home, those that can't, those that were furloughed or lost their job. And so if you look at the jobs of tomorrow, I think you also have to try and bridge that divide of the the people that will work differently, but will always be in a job and those that actually feel really misplaced. On that subject, let's hear our first clip from Sadia Zahidi, who's leading the Jobs Reset Summit. She's a managing director at the World Economic Forum and head of its Centre for the New Economy and Society. Rising inequality will be a big theme of the summit. And this is what Sadia had to say about the declining middle class in some parts of the world. So you're seeing that shrinkage of the middle class. In fact, in just the last year alone, in, for example, India, there are 32 million less people in the middle class. And that is before the current tragic outbreak that is happening there. So overall, you're seeing a massive rise in some of the concerns around inequality, poverty, a loss of jobs, a disruption in the workplace. So that's Sadia Zahidi. Francine, what do you think will be the big impacts of the pandemic, apart from people obviously losing jobs in economic slowdown? 
Do you think there'll be other things that will change for various jobs in the future? I think there is more of a realization, Robin, amongst uh, Western readers that they need to tackle job creation and inequality. Uh, because otherwise we go to populist governments, we go to people, you know, being very unhappy and even taking to the streets. So if you look at the last decade, there are so many obstacles in, in achieving what people could, you know, achieve. People of color, women have made great, great progress, but they're still left behind. And the coronavirus crisis definitely deepened this malaise. If you look at um, what Western worlds are doing, I guess it's, you know, fair taxes, stronger social safety nets, they're part of the answer, but it's also restarting the economy. And then there's all this chat about, are we going to work from home? Is it going to be much more flexible hours? Um, is it going to be, you know, half the time in the office, you know, two thirds somewhere else? And again, what that means also for your salary, for your flexibility and for your family. So obviously the Jobs Reset Summit will be looking at the impact of COVID, about the changes in technology. Um, one element I'd like to talk about is social mobility. Francine, let's see one other clip here from Sadia. What's she have to say about social mobility? There has been this upward socioeconomic mobility. Um, most generations believe that they can ensure that the next generation will be able to do better than they will and there has been this sort of um, social mobility escalator that has existed for quite some time. That has fallen apart when it comes to the technological change of the last five years in particular, combine that with the disruption that is currently happening due to the pandemic-induced recession, and combine that with all of the shifts that are being made in terms of um, a shift towards a more sustainable and greener economy, all of that together is disrupting all of those pathways that people previously had to be able to ensure that the next generation does better than them, that in their lifetimes, they're able to do better than they had before. So Francine, what do you think about this idea of expecting your children to have a more prosperous life than you? I mean, I suppose that's a kind of a motivating force for most people. Yeah, and and certainly I think some of the you know structural reform problems that we've had in Europe for such a long time, um, with also you know countries that in the past have always gone on strike, continue to do so, is just because of that. Because people take to the street and saying, well, my parents had this, my parents could afford you know to have a job for life. My parents, I'm thinking of France, you know, my parents uh, had affordable housing, and I don't have the same. And it's, you know, as parents do want opportunities for their children. Yeah, you raised France as an example of, you know, which has got a grand history of protest. You have to wonder, though, whether sometimes those protests are harking back to a past that isn't there anymore. I've lived in France. I've lived in Italy, again, a country where people were used to having jobs for life. But what that's meant, particularly in Italy, is none of the young people can get any of those jobs because employers aren't giving out jobs which they know will have to be for life. And these are political questions, different political cultures in different countries, the way they address this. But one thing no country can avoid is the rapidly changing demands for certain types of jobs and the lowering in demand of other jobs that have been replaced by technology. Every country will decide its own way on, on how to get around that. But I don't know if any country has really figured out how to get the right skills from the right people. Let's hear once again from Sadia Zahidi and what she has to say about education and skills. We don't quite have systems today that work. We have fairly archaic systems that were designed at the time of the first industrial revolution and education systems where schooling of a certain number of years 
was expected to carry you through to the end of your lifetime. That is simply no longer the case. And so we need one key sector or industry, if you will, in the social economy, which is a skilling related sector that provides lifelong learning. So Francine, lifelong learning, is that anything you've done any work on? Well, I tried to, but we collated actually a lot of um, banks, uh, you know, research reports on this. And one of the most interesting ones came just this week from Bank of America, and they're looking at the long-term future of work. Now, in their report, they basically say that labor markets of tomorrow will not be driven by these traditional white or blue-collar work, but they talk about these new-collar jobs um, in technology. So this is, you know, cyber coding, uh, embracing robots. And what I found particularly interesting, uh, Robin, was depending on these pink positions. And this is a so-called care economy, right? So it's nurses, carers, teachers, and then the green jobs, including solar engineers, uh, wind technicians, and battery experts. And if you look at every Western economy, but also some of the emerging markets, they're trying to make sure that their workforce is prepared to that, just because they're also investing so much money in making sure that the growth comes from these well-paid jobs. So the future of new jobs that came up at the Global Technology Governance Summit in April. This is Stuart Russell, Professor of Computer Science at the University of California, Berkeley, talking about the unexpected strengths of humans compared to robots. The key question is, what are the roles for human beings? And I think the answer has to be the roles are ones that involve interpersonal interaction. So situations where we want humans to be doing that thing or situations where humans have a competitive advantage. And where do we have an advantage over a super intelligent machine? It's actually in knowing what it's like to be a human being. So for example, if I hit my thumb with a hammer, you know what that's like because you're a human being and you've done it before and you can empathize, you have the same nervous system. A machine can have a PhD in neuroscience and it can study our brains and so on, but it will never know what it feels like to hit your thumb with a hammer or to be left by your long-term lover or to lose a job or to win a prize or any of those things. Stuart Russell of University of California, Berkeley, speaking at the World Economic Forum's Tech Summit in April. You can hear more from that on a previous episode of Radio Davos. There'll be a link in the article accompanying this episode. Francine, when it comes to the future of jobs, it's clear that education and training need to get up to speed. Let me play you this clip from a captain of industry. This is the head of PwC, who spoke to my colleague Linda Lucina on her podcast, the sister podcast of Radio Davos, Meet the Leader. This is Bob Moritz. We're actually talking about how do you create a sustained environment for continuous learning? We probably want to upskill people in digital technologies. We want to upskill them in the case of having them apply new technologies to the way they live and work. And we want to enhance the skills for leaders to create the right environment for all of this to happen in a safe way. And it's got to be this continuous learning because the world's moving too fast and it's too dynamic to leave it as one and done. Bob Moritz of PwC talking to my colleague Linda Lucina on our sister podcast, Meet the Leader. Talking of Meet the Leader, here's news about another one. Rich Lesser, the CEO of Boston Consulting Group, knows that big challenges like the climate won't be tackled without collaboration at the highest levels. He also knows that teams at companies around the world must do their part to scale big change. So the role that companies can play is much more sometimes than they realize. He talked to Meet the Leader about teaming and the signals leaders send that keep teams thinking about the big picture while also pushing new boundaries. I've been fortunate to have people who felt comfortable enough to say, Rich, we could do something here. We could do 
more. He also shared how he's changed as a leader in his 33 years at the firm, the advice he'd give a younger self, and the only book he's given to every managing director and partner. I'm your host, Linda Lucina, and there's all that and more on the latest episode of Meet the Leader. Welcome back to Radio Davos. I'm talking with Francine Lacroix from Bloomberg TV about the future of jobs ahead of the Jobs Reset Summit. Now we're going to have a bit of fun here, Francine, because published a few days ago was this list of the jobs of the future. Cognizant Centre for the Future of Work does this every year. And this year they've said these aren't the jobs of the future, they're the jobs of the now. Why don't we just go through them and see which of these you or I might be interested in, in doing if, you know, if we had a career right. change. Okay, here's the top 10, and you'll find a link to this on the article that accompanies this podcast episode. So number one, I don't know what order they're in, the work from home facilitator. You'll have a person organizing everyone who's working from home. Do you fancy that job, Francine? I mean, I feel like that's a, a parenting job, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that what you do as a parent anyway? I, Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm good at organizing. I'm not that great at working from home because I'm a people's person. But yeah, maybe I'd consider it. Okay, number two on the list of the jobs of the future, fitness commitment counsellor. Love it. Is it like a motivational yoga instructor or maybe that's one more for you, Robin? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I, I guess so. I'll just read what it says here on the blog that a company says, predictive and preventative approaches to counselling paired with digital wearables like Fitbit and Apple Watch. On last week's uh, Radio Davos, we were talking actually two weeks ago about mental health in the workplace. And I think part of that is physical health as well. And lots of companies are actually putting money into this. So a fitness commitment counsellor could actually be a job title of the future as we take mental and physical health in the workplace more seriously. Job number three, smart home designer. Well, everyone likes a smart home, but do we know what a smart home is? So is this a cross between like feng shui and, and how to reorganize your screens? Because that would be extremely, extremely valuable, especially if you work in small apartments and have to work more from home. So I'd be probably game for that, actually. Yeah, I, I think also the idea of a smart home as well is where the home, it's the internet of things, all these gadgets that we're coming around our house. Yes, a feng shui person who could come in and say, here's where you put your Alexa, I suppose. Okay, smart home designer, number three. Number four, an XR immersion counsellor. What even is XR? My research assistant, Wikipedia here, it says uh, X-reality, XR or cross-reality is a mixed reality environment that comes from the fusion of ubiquitous sensor networks and shared online virtual worlds. This mixture of the real physical mm. world mixed with that virtual reality. And the job was called XR Immersion Counselor. Okay, well, someone guiding us through that. It sounds like we both need a counsellor on that, yes. Francie. Should we skip to number five? Yep. Workplace environment architect. I know lots, lots of jobs are called architect these days, and they're nothing actually to do with architecture. But this would be someone who's looking at health screenings and elevator commutes in post-pandemic offices. Again, bearing in mind employee well-being. So would you fancy being a workplace environment architect? I would actually. I mean, is that is that a fancy word for, for containment? So that actually if someone's sick or, or, you know, has a problem, you need to try and fix it. It goes to maybe some of the skills that people will really need to have in the future, right? If, if there are more and more robots, then it's critical thinking. 
it's the kind of more of the softer skills that humans will have to develop. So that's a pretty good one, actually. All right. Number six, algorithm bias auditor. That's an interesting one. A lot of the information we get and our interactions in the world are driven by algorithms with no human input. Turns out they're just as racist and sexist and everything else is as the bad old days with actually human beings. So maybe we need an algorithm bias auditor. What do you think? 100%. I would put the pressure on companies right, that use these algorithms to do it right at the start. So instead of an auditor, you need it before. So when you create the algorithm, you make sure that you know, they're, they're fair and treat everyone equally. Number seven, data. This sounds great. Data detective. Openings for data scientists remain the fastest growing job in the tech-heavy algorithms, automation, and AI family of jobs to help companies investigate the mysteries in big data. Well, data is a mystery to most of us. So I suppose there's a future for someone who can detect through the data. Is that like a futurist where you try and predict the future analyzing big data? which I think is a skill, maybe not my skill, mm-hmm. but, but it is where a lot of you know, jobs, I remember having a, a conversation actually, Robin, with the chief executive who says, if he had to go back to school and choose a subject, it would be maths because just by being, you know, doing very high level maths, and that's when you learn how to crunch data and look at patterns. I'm afraid I've missed that wave, <laughs> but it does sound like a good job if you do like advanced maths from a very early age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably why we're both in journalism, isn't it? But then again, you get data journalists, and usually, if they're particularly good at maths, that's a similar thing, crunching the numbers. A lot of investigative journalism is data journalism these days, right? Almost at the end of our list of the jobs of the future, for anyone listening who's forgotten what on earth we're talking about, we're going through this list. These are jobs that I've never heard of any of these before, but apparently these are the jobs some of us will be doing in the years to come. At number eight, they're great. Who wrote these? Cyber calamity forecaster from state-sponsored cyber attacks, it says here, like solar winds. Last week's Radio Davos, to show how zeitgeisty we are, was about ransomware. There's a calamity. So cyber bandits shut down uh, what was called the jugular of energy infrastructure of the United States. But someone who can forecast cyber calamities, this is a job that already exists, it says here. Every, almost every chief executive actually that we, we speak to um, say that what they're most worried about is cyber attacks. And the increases, I'm looking at numbers, and the increases of cyber attacks, either through phishing or ransomware, has increased so much. And what you're talking about in the pipeline, I think in the end, the hackers got you know, just under $5 million for it. So are you going to have even more hackers try to do that? I think it's probably a cross between foreign policy because it depends on whether it's it's countries, you know, trying to put that malware or whether it's individuals. But that would be, I mean, it's like MI5 or mm. MI6. I mean, it's, you know, the yeah. 21st century. And on this list, I suppose these are all the legal jobs, but I'm afraid to say one of the jobs of the future, I mean, if you're into hacking and cybercrime, There's a lot of money there. This is a growth sector. And so obviously countering that is the legal side of things. You mentioned, Francine, that the chief executives you interview always cite cybercrime and and cybersecurity as a big worry. The World Economic Forum always looks at uh, risks perceived every year, and it's always up there. And another one that's always up there is climate change and the results of climate change, crazy, unpredictable weather, extreme weather events, Mm. which brings me to number nine on the list of the jobs of the future, which is 
Tidewater architect. Tidewater architects will work with nature, not against it, in some of the biggest civil engineering projects of the 21st century. Whatever we do with emissions, sea levels are going to rise in such a way that a lot of our coastal areas in rich countries and poor countries are going to have to do something about the encroaching sea. Do you often hear people mention climate change when you're talking to the chief executives, Francis? All the time. And actually, if you also look at the EU recovery plan, you know, a lot of the jobs will be created by, you know, trying to counter the effects of climate change. Again, I saw a survey that by 2029, I think this was only looking at America, but it's a good benchmark of what happens in the rest of the world. You know, the two quickest jobs increasing will be solar PV installers and wind turbine service technicians. Mm -hmm. So if you look probably at, at the quickest way of, of seeing how our economies change and where the job creation will come from, it, it definitely has to do with sustainability, climate change, and how to adapt to this new reality. Let's get to number 10, the last one on this list. This is called a human machine teaming manager, a manager that operates at the intersection of people and robots to create seamless collaboration. Lots of people are doing this job and it's growing apparently. So to make it easier for us to work with robots, and vice versa. In North America in 2020, when you look at how companies spent their money, purchases of robots jumped 64%. I had to read it twice because I couldn't quite believe 64% in the fourth quarter of 2020. And so as you have more robots and how you, you, you know, I guess you, you need someone to understand the intersection of how humans can interact with robots or even fix them. You'll need technicians for that. Um, so that's probably, you know, one of my favorite ones to look at. Well, that comes to the end of that list. I mean, we were approaching those fairly lightheartedly, but this is a serious list and you can go and find that if you Google the article is called Jobs of the Now, the jobs of the future have arrived early. Here are the top 10. There'll be a link to it on the article that accompanies this episode of Radio Davos. We've been looking ahead to the Jobs Reset Summit, which Francine, you're, you're participating in it as well, I think, right? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's, you know, the big question because it touches on climate change, it touches on equality, on the economy. So it's probably, you know, the big, and it touches the livelihoods. Like everyone cares about job creation, even if sometimes, you know, the words that are used are too fancy for them. This is basically, the, you know, the prosperity of the family going forward. Well, enjoy that. Good luck with your session there. Thanks so much for joining us on Radio Davos. Francine Lacqua from Bloomberg TV. Many thanks. Thank you so much. You can follow the Jobs Reset Summit live or on catch up at weforum.org and across social media using the hashtag JobsReset21. There are links in the article that accompanies this episode. That's at wef.ch slash podcasts. And that's also the place to get our previous episodes. We'll also be doing a best of episode to catch up on highlights of the Jobs Reset Summit. To get that, please subscribe to Radio Davos and also our sister program, Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, and Francine Lacqua of Bloomberg TV. My thanks to her and to Alex Court. Studio production of this episode was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.